You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. So, Neil, I wanted to talk a little bit today about this new journal that was launched recently, Nature Machine Intelligence. And its birth creation has stirred a lot of conversation. Yeah, I don't think it's quite launched yet, but it's announced. And it's created an amount of excitement because I think there's a sense in the machine learning community that, oh, we get recognition, uh, sort of nature, woohoo. I should say I have a personal opinion on this. I'll try and reflect, I think, what the various arguments are. But um, so uh, Tom Dietrich has shared a statement on nature machine intelligence, which is uh, available for people to to sign up to. And the statement is basically saying, well, it actually quotes, and I I was involved, I should be clear, in drafting the statement. So um, I was very impressed by, uh, in 2001, the resignation of most of the machine learning journal board, which my understanding is was to do with uh, the placing of papers online. And there's a sort of line in that resignation letter from 2001, which is the formation of JMLR. Um, Journals should principally serve the needs of the intellectual community, in particular by providing the immediate and universal access to journal articles that modern technology supports and doing so at a cost that excludes no one. So the machine learning community has survived very much on an open access model. And the letter goes on to mention all the outlets that are open access and and free at the point of publication and free at the point of viewing. It's a wonderful thing. I remember when this happened, I just assumed that every other outlet was going to be like this soon because once JMLR had shown it was possible. And JMLR did get, it gets, uh, it's, it's hosted by MIT. And there's some small costs that I think at one point Leslie Pat Cabling was covering, but I think covered in somewhere else to just do the accounting each year. But JMLR, NIPS, ICML, ICLR, Colt, UAI, AI stats, no charge for access to publication of papers. The context of this, I think, and I was involved in conversations uh, around the reaction to this, is I think a sense amongst some researchers, including myself, that nature are seeing a good thing that they can move in on as a profit-making publisher. And a closed access journal is is not something that adds to this ecosystem. In Data Science Africa, for example, I know African universities can't access these journals. Regardless of whatever's said in terms of increasing access, whether those programs don't reach there or whatever. Um, In fact, one of the main benefits of being a visiting researcher at, say, a European research university is access to journals through that. That particularly badly affects students in engineering. Engineering is very close access. Right. And we should say that these these journals, that the system of journal publishing is extremely expensive to subscribe to those journals for for those if you haven't experienced this part of the academic world before the the subscribing to these journals so that you can read them so that you can gain access is extremely expensive so expensive in fact that often your lab has to cover it in order to submit your work to a journal which you need to do in order to be to be published to sort of get the recognition that you would need in order to get that um you also have to submit there's a fee for that it's it's a very entrenched system. I know that um, the world of biology is very attached to nature neuroscience and the nature journals that are around that department of thinking, those departments of thinking. But it, it seems sort of like a kind of a tone deaf move on the part of, of nature that that I mean. Well, I think nature would say that they are looking to sort of highlight an exciting area. I mean, nature would say all sorts of nice things. And I don't want to sort of but I, but I think the thing you mentioned in particular is there's something called bundling, where an individual publisher, and I think they sell their journals as one. 
So you can't pick and choose. You can't just subscribe to nature. Now, that may be, I think that there's moves certainly in Europe to resist that and various things. So there's an ongoing discussion. It's going on for a number of years, but we're talking like 17 years after that resignation letter. You know, and I do find it somewhat shocking that we're in the age where paper publication is, is not necessary. I mean, because, of course, it was a wonderful service. If you, you go back, you know, distributing these things was super important. But, but I want to try and present the alternative point of view because I've spoken to researchers that sort of um, perhaps wouldn't want to sign the uh, statement. The statement is one where you say, um, we'll not submit to review or edit for this journal. Isaac Newton signed it, so we haven't apparently quite got the filtering system yet, but, but you know, it'll get there. But this, um, but but this creates a problem if you have collaborators, right? Yes, yes. Lots of, lots of challenges. Lots of challenges. There's an infection and... Um, and and as well, there's an enormous amount of pressure on some people to... I think the, the counter-argument goes a little bit like this. that In, in many countries, for example, in uh, Colombia, for example, I know there's a point system. And, and nowadays you do get points for submitting to JMLR NIPS, but it's taken a long time. I used to edit for E, and we were overwhelmed by papers from Turkey. And my understanding is the main reason that the Turkish sort of system of research quality only recognizes IEEE. And many of the papers were utterly inappropriate. The journal was IEEE TPAMI, which is the highest impact factor uh, IEEE journal, I think, or apart from reviews, or was at the time. And so people were just going down the list and, and submitting to the one which was going to get them the, the best credibility. And you can see that, that this would mean if I was in Colombia or if I was in Turkey, the Nature brand gives them an automatic prestige. So I can see why that's a high individual incentive and that by potentially signing the statement, you know, you're damaging your collaborator's ability to progress in their career. It's unfortunate because it just points at, you know, something that's a disincentive in the nature of academia and that we don't have these things well laid out. You know, conferences, to my mind, or journals, to my mind, were ways of communicating ideas. They've become a proxy for the quality of a researcher. This is a wider problem. And you can sort of... It's all very nice that I'm saying I want to solve that. But, you know, look at me. I'm doing fine. And, you know, younger researchers may take a different point of view. And I think this question, well, why now? Why this journal? Well, because because it's so tempting in this case. And I think it could really that would be my person, my personal point of view on it is it's so it could really damage this ecosystem of open access journals um, and you could lose a lot of leading work from the open literature, disadvantaging individuals and institutions that can't afford to pay these fees and i'm lucky enough that i get to take a stand and say no so i certainly signed it and indeed helped a bit with the drafting of it but i think it's an important issue you know i'm trying to present both perspectives on it what people think it, it, it's it's a big issue for publishing gender you mentioned biology biology you you, you know they, they've tried it with plos and and i i think the unfortunate thing with plos they charge so much for open access i i believe that was a big mistake that um in fact they set the cost it's thousands of dollars to publish in plos if if you can afford it and that has set that's created an industry in open access journals that charge thousands of dollars for doing nothing I mean, really, most of the work is done by the reviewers, and, and we should be able to build systems, as we have done for the proceedings of machine learning research, which is 
absolutely freely hosted. It's hosted on GitHub in open access ways. And we have systems for getting the, the conference chairs to manage a lot of the work of collating the papers. So that's additional work, but it's only a small additional work over the reviewing. So, so the actual work in the pipeline is minimized. It's scalable. Um, we get it. We've got like 89 volumes of the journal out. Um, there's, there's two of us. We're not always as fast as we should be. But of course, the, the work is distributed amongst the community. It is possible to have models for really reducing the costs of this and keeping everything uh, open. I, I think that even open access where there's high upfront costs, and that's why I think the letter says, in contrast, we would welcome new zero-cost open access journals and conferences in artificial intelligence and machine learning. I mean, to be very clear, this isn't sort of we'd not there are gaps as well. You know, there are gaps in the area of uh, machine learning and ethics, perhaps. You can see interesting gaps there where new journals could form. So, so you know, Nature Machine Intelligence is maybe going to be a journal of record for those areas. So that's another argument why one should have a, a journal of record with, with a good branding behind it coming in because it would immediately become the place to publish that. And, and maybe it will be, but if, I, for one, would be very sad if, if that happens. The machine learning communities operated virtually independently from either professional societies who themselves can charge a lot for these things. I mean, it, those, those are non-profits that charge a lot for these open access costs and uh, for-profit publishers. And, and maybe it's just one of those things that um, goes away as the community grows. But um, I, I think that there's many of us that feel like this, in, including many senior researchers. So I think that's, that's mainly what the letter is about. But I hope I've managed to present all sides of the story, despite feeling quite strongly about which side I come down on. Yeah. Do you think that there's um, an opportunity for a conversation with nature about the, the the journal model? I mean, I know it, or or is this just sort of something where they've taken a stand, they're going to do their thing, and and there will be a reaction by the community that's having the thing done to it? I, I mean, is there... Do you think there's room for change? I think it's hard probably for maybe. And, and I think that would certainly I would welcome that. But of course, it's, you know, it's difficult if you have a large. One of the challenges we're talking about here is is shrinking a potentially large thing. If, if we're actually saying that, that, that a lot of these aspects are less necessary than used to be, organizations find it hard to shrink themselves if they can find ways of sustaining themselves. So maybe, I mean, it would be great, but you, but. I can understand the challenge from their perspective that they're a large business with various things to sustain. They pay probably quite large licensing fees, I suspect, to um, software providers who allow them to do their reviewing software and everything else. I suspect. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, but you know, you can imagine they have all those sort of costs, and there are issues with with moving for them to a sort of low cost model. But it would be great. It would be so great if we could have that conversation. And I think. It is, although it seems not in their short-term interests, it's in their long-term interests because, sure, I thought it would be done and dusted by 2006 and, and we're 17 years down the line. But there are governments sort of refusing to pay these fees now and, and, and something will happen whether it's uh, forced or not. And it would be a wonderful way of, 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 of showing an ability to engage in that conversation and, and move into that position to sort of say, yep, Nature Machine Intelligence is going to be free at the point of access. And, uh, you know, maybe they can't do zero cost publication, but thousands of dollars is, is out of the question. It's got to be like, you know, something very small. I, I don't think it should even be, you know, there's other models. We've got free content all over there. I mean, now I'm going to go back on that. Zero cost to publish 
And, uh, you know, it, the work of reviewing is done by the community already. Uh, that's the majority work. Um, sure, they have professional editors. I think there's an open question about how much that helps. But, but of course, that's a difficult question if, if my starting point is, well, you know, you shouldn't have professional editors. But, you know, but, you know I don't think there should be any red lines on that. And, yeah, that would be a welcome conversation because it, it, cause the other thing about things like this is it's the better we understand other people's point of view on this, then the better we can reach something where everyone's happy. You can find a link to the statement on nature machine intelligence on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And in the interest of presenting both sides of the discussion, we reached out to nature machine intelligence and asked them for a statement on the statement on nature machine intelligence. And we received this. At Springer Nature, we are very clear in our mission to advance discovery and help researchers share their work. Having an extensive and growing open access portfolio is one important way we do this, but it is important to remember that while open access has been around for 20 years now, it still only accounts for a small percentage of the overall global research output, with demand for subscription content remaining high. This is because the move to open access is complex, and for many, simply not a viable option. Nature Machine Intelligence is a new subscription journal that aims to stimulate cross-disciplinary interactions, reach broad audiences, and explore the impact that AI research has on other fields by publishing high-quality research, reviews, and commentary on machine learning, robotics, and AI. It involves substantial editorial development, offers high levels of author service, and publishes informative, accessible content beyond primary research, all of which requires considerable investment. At present, we believe that the fairest way of producing highly selective journals like this one and ensuring their long-term sustainability as a resource for the widest possible community is to spread these costs among many readers, instead of having them borne by a few authors. We also offer multiple open access options for AI authors. We already publish AI papers in Scientific Reports and Nature Communications, which are the largest open access journal in the world and the most cited open access journal respectively. We offer hybrid publishing options and are set to launch a new AI multidisciplinary open access journal later this year. We help all researchers to freely share their discoveries by encouraging reprint posting and data and code sharing and continue to extend access to all nature journals in various ways, including our free Shared It content sharing initiative, which provides authors and subscribers shareable links to view only versions of published papers. And again, that was the statement that was provided to us by the spokes team over at Nature Machine Intelligence when we asked them for a statement on the statement on Nature Machine Intelligence. For a print copy of that, you can visit our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Our guest this week on Talking Machines is Maithra Hagu, and she's at the Google Brain team. When we got a chance to sit down with her, we asked her the first question that we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? So I started off and I actually don't have background in computer science. <laughs> I studied pure math um, and sort of the thing leading there is I competed in all of these math Olympiad competitions. Oh, cool. They've gone pretty well. So I've won international medal. Oh, very <laughs> nice. Excellent. And uh, yeah, so, so went on to study pure math. Um, but I think when I was studying this, I already knew that um, maybe I wanted to do research in something different. Um, and I was drawn towards computer science because it's sort of closer to applications. It's mm. exciting to sort of apply your mathematical knowledge in this way. 
Um, and then, and then when I got into computer science, um, I was already excited about machine learning. And then when I attended NIPS a few years ago, I think it was 2014 then, mm. um, I was ex especially excited by, by deep learning. Mm. Um, and in particular, so in mathematics, you know, you try and understand things systematically or you build up this sort of systematic intuition. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the systematic kind of intuition and understanding, um, at that point in time, um, seems like, you know, there could be a lot more work that was done there. Mm. And so that's what really drew me to deep learning and also to interpretability, which is what I'm working on right now. Yeah. And, and tell me about what you're interested in around interpretability. You have a really interesting paper out, which is, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think is aimed at trying to um, understand what's going on in the layers of, of super dense networks. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Um, so there's been, you know, interpretability is a hot topic yes. and um, there have been lots of different approaches to it. Um, so I think one class of approaches has been trying to take sort of this more complex model, maybe a deep neural network and, and turn it into into a simpler model. Mm. Um, and so, so, you know, there's, there's kind of good work being done there. Um, but what's more exciting to me is, is sort of taking this complex model and actually coming up with ways that we can actually understand what's going on inside. Mm -hmm. And this is because, you know, these complex models work great. So it's, 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 you know, it's, I think, even more helpful to see what's, what's actually going on right. inside of them. Um, and so with this, so, so complex models are, are deep neural networks. Um, and with deep neural networks, you know, so you have all of these layers. Um, and so these lower layers are where you feed in the input. The very first layer is sort of this input layer. Mm -hmm. And right at the top, you have this output layer. And this output layer sort of tells you how well the network is doing at whatever task you're trying to get it to do. Mm -hmm. um, but all in the middle, it's still a bit of a mystery as to what happens there. Um, and, and in particular, so, so people have been trying to address this mystery. Um, and what you'll often see in sort of previous papers is um, people will take single neurons that are sort of hidden, so mm -hmm. they're not at the bottom or at the very top, mm -hmm. um, and they'll try and visualize what they're doing. So what, what are they paying attention to? But one thing that really hasn't gotten enough attention, I think, um, <laughs> is that um, these hidden neurons, um, so they're all combined together. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they work in isolation. You have all of this linear combination happening. Right. Um, and so when we, when we came up with this paper, what we wanted to do is sort of understand the way that these sort of hidden representations are sort of distributed amongst these hidden neurons. Huh. That's really interesting. And tell me, tell me more about the specific method. It's got, it's got um, a, a very long title. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I mean, I think in short, you can just think of it as SVCCA, okay. which stands for Singular Vector Canonical Correlation Analysis, but just forget that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so, yeah, so in this particular method, so our paper, so we sort of developed this maybe way you can think about hidden representations mm -hmm. and sort of this method that goes along with it um, that actually lets us discover these sort of distributed sort of interactions between your hidden neurons. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so this method, what we do, uh, it's pretty simple. Um, we kind of think of these hidden neurons as um, these vectors, mm. um, these sort of large kind of string of numbers on sort of all of this input that we're feeding a network. And the, the nice thing about thinking of hidden neurons in this way is that, so layers are sort of these groups of hidden neurons that all sort of get combined together. Yeah. And so if you have neurons sort of acting as vectors, um, then there's this sort of natural analogy of thinking of layers as subspaces. Hmm. Um, and, and now we're really onto something because now we have a, a tractable way of actually looking at different linear combinations of neurons. Um, and so that's what we do. So once we have this set up, uh, we adapt these tools from, from sort of standard statistics 
statistics, so singular value decomposition, and um, most importantly, canonical correlation analysis, so hence the title, SVCCA. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we can actually use these to to understand uh, what a specific layer is is learning. That's really interesting. So you're using it to essentially like crack open the box, the top and the bottom, mm-hmm. and, and take out, um, I guess, like a section of honeycomb, pull one out and be able to look at that single layer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you can sort of pull out a single layer and, and see what's going on there. Um, and maybe even better if we if we sort of take a layer and we compare it to maybe a specific thing that we expect the network might learn, mm. like maybe maybe some kind of like dogs or fire yeah. trucks. Uh, we can actually work out which group of neurons is maybe becoming most sensitive to to that concept and and see and you know and sort of see them in action. That's really interesting. Is it computationally efficient enough to be able to investigate the entire? The entire stack, or um, yes, it is. So, uh, so, so this required further work. So we had some preliminary experiments where you're sort of uh, just trying this out with sort of smaller data sets, smaller mm-hmm. networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we did some more work, and it actually had some beautiful math. And for that, uh, I reference the paper. Um, <laughs> but we we actually got this to scale up pretty nicely to to ImageNet size networks. So wow. ImageNet is a very big so image classification task. The images are huge; they're they're like a million pixels. Mm-hmm. Um, the the networks are huge too. Right. Uh, they have millions and millions of parameters. Um, and we were we were able to get it to work on this, so, so that was pretty exciting. That's really amazing. I mean, it must have such huge implications for just being able to even introduce the idea of a control or investigating your model or, or understanding what decisions are being made inside of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And in you know, in particular, so a funny example is that so neural networks sometimes will will try and cheat when you're trying mm. to teach them something. Mm-hmm. So maybe if you're teaching them to try and recognize birds, um, uh-huh. they might become sensitive to things that are around the birds, trees. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Puns. You have a drift, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so this technique's also quite useful for sort of finding, sort of finding out if they are cheating. Yeah. So you can try and take the sort of neural network and sort of compare it to say, well, are you paying attention to birds or are you paying attention mm. to something that's sort of close to the birds? And if it is, um, then you can find out which group of neurons is responsible for this, uh, and then you can just sort of uh, stop them from influencing the output. So you can sort of project them out basically that's really interesting that must be really a really powerful tool for sort of investigating inherent bias in whatever you're you're training the model on as well yes exactly so we we didn't actually have a chance to explore this as fully as we wanted to in this first paper because you know it was quite a lot of effort just to (laughs) develop the method work out how to scale it Mm -hmm. and then sort of see what see what kinds of interesting applications we could we could possibly have um but that would be very exciting future work definitely that's really interesting are you focusing mainly on on images or do you have other application areas that you're going to expand to or is it just sort of generalizable at this point or yeah so so in our first paper we mostly focused on images mm-hmm. um but we did have some preliminary experiments that we tried on language models for oh, example cool. um it worked pretty well on there uh but you know we haven't that's that's sort of areas that are open wide open for future research yeah um another exciting application might be reinforcement learning mm-hmm. um so this method also lets you uh compare um say say you have two neural networks that are maybe trained on the same task mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. you can actually compare their hidden representations to see to see sort of how similar they are what things they learn that are similar what things they learn that are different Um, and so with reinforcement learning uh, when you train a little RL model on some task um, often there's a lot of variance so one run through you'll sort of uh, have some level of performance and another run through you'll completely fail right Um, and and there's been some really nice papers on this so there's a there's a paper called deep reinforcement learning that matters that kind of uh, actually actually shows this very very nicely and so it would be very interesting to see whether um, the reason that you sort of get this huge variance in performance is sometimes the network is, you know, paying attention to different things, mm. things that are more helpful mm-hmm. um, than than sort of this other 
time where it completely fails you're or maybe having it's task drift or whatever yeah exactly and and so we haven't really been able to do something like that before so so that would be re- another really interesting application I think. that's really fascinating that's amazing and you're, you're also you've been involved in the interpretability workshop this year at mm-hmm. nips um which i feel like uh, i've been saying to people you know orange is the new black uh, interpretability is the new deep learning <laughs> um but so so tell me what do you think are the sort of main points of conversation there as someone who's been doing work in interpretability for a while that you would want someone who has maybe been off somewhere else and is now interested in applying these ideas to sort of know and be able to enter into the conversation with? Uh, I see. Uh, let's see. So I guess, um, I mean, I, I mean, I think one takeaway, so this debate about sort of like, um, the, the, you know, the right way to do imp- interpretability, kind of the importance of doing interpretability came up at the, the conference as well. Um, I guess I'd emphasize um, trying hard to to understand these more complex models, actually. Mm-hmm. So so with interpretability, sometimes, you know, um, sometimes you take sort of your larger complicated network and maybe distill it down to something yeah. smaller. Um, and then sometimes there are sort of performance costs that you end up paying for that. Um, and, and, you know, that that that's frustrating that's an irritating trade-off to make and i think it's a trade-off we shouldn't have to make mm-hmm. um and so yeah definitely I, I think just going headfirst into the the more complex model and, and really trying to see how it works is I, I think definitely the way forward excellent excellent and so what questions are you excited about now what are you going to be what are you going to be working on what are you working on next um yeah so so we have some follow-ups to um to this so for example yeah so maybe some other applications or trying trying this out on maybe different sort of data sets those are those are things are excited about um one one personal kind of excitement for me is um i'm also excited by healthcare and applications oh, cool. of machine learning to healthcare yeah um, so i think this is a place where interpretability is really very important you don't you definitely don't want to just output a decision on your right. on your sort of like data that you get you want to kind of give some reasoning as to why and so maybe sort of adapting some of these techniques to work there is yeah something i'd really like to do that's fascinating are there any data sets that you're particularly excited about or people's questioning that's already going on in in the healthcare realm that that you'd like to to follow up on or expand on? So I think for now, image data sets. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So sort of working with Google, we have a, um, there's this diabetic retinopathy data set. And um, so, yeah, doing, definitely doing some stuff with that, sort of understanding better, you know, what what makes sort of, uh, I don't know, images like features of images that maybe result in a certain sort of diagnosis or what makes certain things hard to spot. Um, Yeah, so questions, questions of those form. My Thoraku. It was really fascinating to be able to talk with her and really hear about all the the things that she's working out and the questions that she's considering. That's it for us this week on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Join us next episode 